We're being recorded. Okay, excellent. Well, you're very welcome, Peter. Thanks for taking time out to join us on the webinar. And uh, we have a, a nice audience that's just streaming into the room now. So uh, we'll give it just a minute and we'll kick off. And we're going to talk about you. We're going to talk about big health and we're going to talk about mental health and digital therapeutics and, and all um, kind of related topics. And we'll try and make it as interactive as possible. And um, we'll try to get a little bit of you know, maybe your backstory and um, kind of how you see the market at the moment and how you think things are kind of you know, rolling out and uh, you know, what you're kind of seeing going forward. So um, we've, got, uh, we've got 35 people in the room. I think we're expecting a few more, but uh, yeah. we might as well, time is precious. You're an entrepreneur, so we might as well get started. <laughs> and uh, let's start at the start. So before Big Health, let's go back to your kind of early days and uh, you know, how did you, how did you end up here? And what was kind of, as you were starting out thinking about your career, is um, something that you said, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go and start a, you know, digital therapeutics probably didn't even exist back then. So, you know, tell us a little bit about that backstory. No, I did, I, it was all, it was part of the master plan. <laughs> you know, I was like, to my career advisor, I was like, this is what I wanna do is great. No. The, um, yeah, so I mean, I uh, did all sorts of things prior to founding Big Health. You know, I like to say I have the resume of a lunatic, like it doesn't make a huge amount of sense. Um, but probably the most relevant, you know, which is it did, you know, directly, um, you know, in, like lead to the foundation of Big, what is now Big Health uh, was, you know, my, I did my undergrad in experimental psychology, you know, so although I am not a clinician, you know, I'm not a licensed um, therapist, I do know the science behind non-drug interventions for problems such as, you know, insomnia, anxiety, depression, you know, these chronic mental health conditions, and that, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, uh, you know, is recommended as, you know, the first line therapy in many cases for these, these conditions. Um, so that was like a really relevant grounding. Uh, and then, you know, winding path that took me uh, uh, via you know, doing like marketing and comm strategy uh, in big, big ad agencies um, through to working with uh, Martha Lane Fox, who, um, again, folks who are in the US won't know of, but in the UK is a very renowned um, you know, tech entrepreneur. Um, and, you know, so sort of a winding path, but really it was my my own experience of insomnia that, that really provoked the idea behind what is now big health and so so yeah so i you know i um was working for martha at the time um actually in her karaoke business oh, okay was that before lastminute.com <laughs> this is after this is after <laughs> okay i still have so, shared uh, lastminute.com so i need to talk to you about that <laughs> yeah so anyone can sort of make their own conclusions about the connection between you know, karaoke and insomnia is probably, I'll leave that to the everyone's own perspective on how those two things are connected. But, um, but yeah, and so, you know, developed, you know, insomnia, one of the worst experiences of my life, without a doubt. And um, I'm very, like I say, very fortunate to have had that grounding at undergrad in experimental psychology. And so unlike, I would say, 99% of the population, you know, I, I, I knew what the evidence was and what the most effective interventions were. And so, this is all back in the UK, you know, went to my GP, um, uh, you know, very, 
uh, in a very self-satisfied way announced my self-diagnosis <laughs> primary chronic uh, primary chronic insomnia i have a degree in this uh to the doctor which obviously doctors love uh and uh you know requested that i be referred for a course of cognitive behavioral therapy uh the gp uh responded by saying up yours <laughs> like here's, here's here's some sleeping pills um and that's all i could get was was the you know generic ambient essentially and you know that really is the default experience that like the vast majority and we'll, we'll obviously get into mental health but you know i think it's a really a real blind spot actually that like the reality is is that for all the talk of psychotherapy which obviously is powerfully evidence-based and the importance of getting more people into you know behavioral health like you know human sort of therapy um the truth is 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 that there are many 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 more people um than can ever see a therapist who have mental health problems and end up getting stuck at best in primary care. You know, we know that like 80% of the people with a mental health problem get medications. Like that is actually the default treatment. And, you know, that was my experience as well. So I took the meds, they didn't work. Um, and, you know, as we know, they have very you know, significant side effects and quite unpleasant from a you know, patient experience perspective. Um, and so eventually out of desperation, I ended up getting my hands on a self-help book, like a self-administered course of cognitive behavioral therapy written by this, this world's expert, this guy called Professor Colin Espy. Um, and you know, again, the, the, sort of the, the deck somewhat stacked in my favor. My sister is a clinical psychologist right, on the NHS. And you know, so she actually recommended it and was like, this is a very you know, evidence-based book, like that you can, you know, series of books that you can use. So I you know, went through it. Plan, you know, tough manual process. Um, but in six weeks, I was totally cured. Wow. Like, totally better. And, and how, long, how long was it? How long were you kind of between going to the GP and, and finding the book? How long did that take? I want to say that, like, um, you know, because in the scheme of things, mine something wasn't even, you know, in some ways naturally non remitting. And so that's why you see an increased prevalence up the age spectrum because people get it and keep it. Like they don't get rid of it, you know, they don't naturally get rid of it. And so, um, but mine was, you know, three, four months, which is on the short end, actually. Like, um, you know, you see people who have insomnia for decades, you know, unresolved, and just sort of learn to learn to live with it. Um, but then after that, I want to say yeah, probably another, you know, couple of months before I was able to actually figure my way through that. And like every, like many people with insomnia had tried everything and tried like midnight gardening. <laughs> like, just try to like chill myself out. And like, you know what I mean? Like you just, you, you, you sort of, yeah become almost like shamanic and going okay well trying to sort of read the runes of like will tonight be a good night or a bad night and so you, you're sort of hypersensitive to looking for signals of what might be predictive or not of being able to you know, address this problem and so yeah it probably took me another couple of months but then it was you know really short so the, the beauty of cbt is a very short form of intervention that can deliver very significant sustained results and so like say about five six weeks i was back to sleeping normally should we say sleeping healthily and i guess uh, I, you know, I haven't experienced it myself but anytime i go without sleep for whatever reason i find it very hard to function properly so i can only imagine that it kind of builds on itself and then it can start to create all sorts of other you know challenges and issues yeah absolutely and you know as i again my co-founder my now co-founder because likes to say like think of an area of your life that sleep doesn't affect there isn't one really. <laughs> it's like, 
your productivity, your you know, concentration, you know, your mood as a result, your relationships, like, you know, everything, like your physical health, obviously it's a knock on effect. And so it really opened my eyes to also the interconnectedness between these issues, you know, so, which again is intuitive. Like if you can't sleep, you know, of course it's reasonable to expect your mood the next day is going to be significantly affected. Yeah. You know, if you're anxious, then that will also, you know, you're less likely to sleep the following night. So it like to your point, it very. I think any of these conditions can very rapidly sort of unravel a lot of, uh, and that's that. I think this sort of from an individual perspective, the really striking thing is, like how quickly some of the fundamentals, your foundations, can be knocked out from under you. You know, um, and you know that sense of like, why can't I like, in effect, you know, learned helplessness. Like, I can't solve it. Like, yes. what's wrong with me? Like, this is like, why can't is everyone sleep? Everyone can sleep. Like, why can't I solve this problem? You know. So I think. Um, as we'll get into, I think that like patient perspective, like yeah, has really served, served as well in terms of the way that we've thought about like approaching tackling that problem. Yeah, yeah. And as you, like, you know, you spend, if you're lucky, maybe you spend a third of your life asleep. I mean, we still know so little about it, uh, but we, it's such a big portion of our lives that we, you know, don't really understand, right? It's, it's all kind of, yeah. It's, there is some science around it, but it is still very misunderstood or kind of lacking understanding. So, so you went through that, you know, because your own determination and connections and, and, and background, you could find non-drug solutions and came out of the back of that. But then you had kind of decided, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go and try and help other people, you know, and go into it. So what was the spark for moving from your old job to, okay, I'm gonna take the plunge and tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I mean, it was actually, you know, it's like I said, this, this book, was very, you know, did the trick. And it was, I literally felt like magic. Like I had knew the science, you know, I knew the sort of theory behind it. I'd never witnessed the, in practice. And for those that haven't experienced it, you know, CBT is a sort of broad collection of, of you know, evidence-based uh, techniques and approaches and interventions. Um, I, I like to think of it as like evidence-based common sense. Right? Like it's great power is, is that it is very, you know, non-mystical, it's very pragmatic. It's like a, a skills-based model, right? Which is about like, how do we um, empower someone to like tackle their own problems? And so for me, it was a really inspiring experience and also like opened my eyes to this totally crazy situation, which is that hundreds of millions of people across the world are suffering from these chronic like mental health problems for which we have these evidence-based solutions that we've known about for like 30 years, 30, 40 years. Like there's hundreds of randomized control trials showing that these solutions are radically more effective and safer than, the, than anything else, right? In, you know, in many cases, or at least as good as, right? Like the alternatives um, without many of the side effects or you know, downsides. And so, you know, and, and yet despite that, you know, no one can get it. No one can access and the vast majority of people are excluded from you know a really effective evidence-based and safe mental health care and so that's really what sparked the thought which was like you know how can we bridge that gap and as you rightly say digital it was the, the term digital therapeutics was not a thing back then and you know digital health was barely a term i mean i think maybe you and i were talking about it but i don't think like there was many other people and this is back in london and so um yeah the the, the idea was really first principles which was you know, can we take these evidence-based non-drug interventions for mental health um, and fully automate them? Can we remove the human entirely, you know, deliver a pure software um, solution 
Um, and as a result, can we deliver those therapies as scalably and consistently as medications? Mm -hmm. And that was really the sort of, that was always the, the sort of the core of the idea. And so with that in mind, I then you know, rang up the guy that wrote the book that cured me, uh, you know, Professor Espy, you know, um, put on a suit and tie, <laughs> I, you know, jumped on, a, jumped on a plane to go and see him. And yeah, he became my co-founder. And so he's at the University of Oxford, you know, one of the world's leading behavioral sleep scientists, um, you know, with 40 years of clinical uh, academic research, really helped found the science in insomnia in particular. Um, yeah, and we've built the company together. Like it's been a very productive partnership since that, that day. And, you know, you very successfully went and got indexed to, it was probably their first digital health investment, I think, you know, and probably, I'd probably class them as one at the time, maybe still probably one of the leading, if not the leading European VCs. How, how did that, how did you manage to, convince them that, you know, you're going to be able to change the, the GP who was prescribing drugs to like, you know, a new way of thinking. It was, I actually have to give credit. I give credit to, to index on this front, like genuinely. And like, you know, Neil Reimer, who then joined our board subsequently, I think has shown to have a track record of, of like being, you know, very visionary in terms of, you know, being able to look ahead and sort of see the, the path forward, um, you know, more broadly. And, yeah, like he just sort of keyed into that concept, like that exactly as I just explained it now. It's sort of the fundamentals of, of like the disparity between supply and demand and the ability to, you know, this different modality. So, yeah, I actually give credit to, to Index for having that, that, that sort of vision. We were indeed like the first um, health investment that they made. And yeah, it served us, served us very well. It's because of, really because of that, you know, index getting involved that allowed us to make the move to the US. And that's really what um, I think um, facilitated that. Okay, super. So what I'd like to do then is maybe accelerate through the next 10 years, in about 10 years. <laughs> yeah, cool. Maybe <laughs> in five minutes, uh, we could do down for that. <laughs> bring us up to today, right? So give us a sense of, you know, from having been the guy who experienced it to say, hey, I'm going to get the professor and I'm going to get index and I'm going to start the company. And, and, and now I'm on the entrepreneurial, uh, you know, I'm leading, I'm the founder or co-founder, I'm leading this commercial activity to mm -hmm. where you are today. Could you just give us a little bit of a, a snapshot of those, some of those ups and downs? Yeah, I went to sleep, woke up. And here we are today. <laughs> no, so it was, uh, it was, in, you know, um, Walk in the park. Yeah, I give the very high, the very the high level point. So we, you know, we developed the first version of the first product, Sleepio. You know, the, the, what is it we would now refer to as a digital therapeutic for insomnia um, and poor sleep. Um, and you know, actually from out the gate, as it like got, you did a, the, one of you know, the first placebo group randomized control trial, you know, which was peer reviewed and published. We did all of that like before we took anything out commercially. Which again, I give credit to Colin for, like in terms of like, you know, Professor Espy, because you know he was from day one. Like the ambition here and the opportunity is to deliver, you know, digital therapeutics, you know, at the same scale as pharma. You know, like that's what we're doing here is with the aspiration of it being, you know, truly a therapeutic. You know, and so therefore we should be holding ourselves to the same high levels that any therapeutic would be holding themselves to in terms of safety and effectiveness and demonstrating that. And so we had the first part, the first version, the first product, we had the first clinical studies conducted and then, you know, really struggled candidly in the UK 
to get it to work commercially. And we tried all sorts of different approaches, learned a lot, um, got real conviction around the right path being for it to be a reimbursed solution, you know, as a, uh, in the same way that any therapeutic would be. Um, and, you know, realized that actually a move to the US was going to be necessary in order to unlock that opportunity. Um, and again, I'm, I'm very proud to be an NHS innovation fellow. I think the NHS is one of the wonders of the world. Um, but, you know, more so than today, it was incredibly challenging to get innovation, you know, to, to, from a commercial perspective in the UK by the NHS at the time. I think it's improved a lot, but like, like then it was like, I mean, if you remember, it was just like, I don't it was just, it was completely opaque. There was no uh, sort of- Nowhere to go or who to talk to, right? Yeah, and like, because, you know, taxpayer funded health system, which is magical, means that there's even less, fewer options in terms of how you can make, you know, with the single payer, like make money in a, in a commercial sense viably. So we made the decision to come to the US. That was, I want to say like six years ago, five, six years ago. And then it just really started to take off. And so we, um, you know, cut forward today, you know, we've got coming up to like 10 million covered lives globally. That is to say like populations where whoever is paying their, for their healthcare costs is, you know, reimbursing our digital therapeutics, uh, both sleep here and daylight, uh, you know, focused on insomnia, poor sleep, worry and anxiety. Um, and, you know, we're up to 60 plus peer reviewed publications, you know, 13 randomized control trials. Um, and, you know, a lot of that success has obviously been mediated, which we can dig into via the PBMs here in the US. So partnership with CVS Health, CVS Caremark, the largest PBM with 100 million covered lives. Um, yeah, and you know, a, a lot of that has been through uh, you know, driving coverage through employer-sponsored health plans here. Um, and you know, the way I would characterize it is, is that I, like it feels now, and I know there's a bunch of others probably on the call who are also involved in, in this industry, is that all it took was a global pandemic, <laughs> right? In order to really unlock the potential. And so in retrospect, I think we were probably like 10 years early, <laughs> like on this opportunity. And I think that if I had to do a curve of the last 10 years, it'd be like, no one understands, no one understands, no one cares, no one cares, Ooh, like everyone cares. <laughs> like, so, so I do think that it, it feels like now is the moment actually where there's an acknowledgement of the, not just the opportunity, but the need for like these, you know, transformative models of care to meet the huge level of need out there in the population, the traditional models even just even leverage with technology and not going to be sufficient, yeah. you know? So I think, I think that that's, that brings up to date. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> like four minutes or something. <laughs> yeah, so I think that's a, a good way of thinking about it. A couple of things I wanted to kind of dig into, um, I guess the, the appetite in the U S versus uh, in, in the UK or Europe to try new things. And I know that, I thought I knew the US, I'd been there going back and forth for 20 years and then I spent a year living there and kind of realized how much I didn't understand the health system there. It's only when you're using it yourself, you kind of realize just how fragmented and complicated it is. But, but on the other hand, it's also probably much more open to innovation. So, so I'd love to just get your perspective on, you've successfully done deals with the NHS and with CVS and in the, in, in, in the US in general. Maybe just how you think about those markets would be good, you know, and given post-pandemic or wherever we are now in this pandemic, what you, what you, how you think about the two markets and uh, be really interesting to kind of do that. Yeah, and I think it's evolved a lot in that, in that time period. Um, 
because as you say, we now focus on both the US and the UK, you know, we, we have a lot of uh, traction in both markets. Um, <clears throat> yes, the US market, like you, like I, when I landed, we landed here in the US, like funny accents, didn't know anybody, <laughs> thought we knew about, you know, I'd read like a book or something on like US healthcare. And the best way I can describe it is, is it feels to me is like healthcare is a bit like a fractal. It's like the closer that you get, you think, oh, I've got it sorted out. And then the closer you get, you're like, there's, there's more complexity. <laughs> like, and so every inch you get closer, you realize there's more and more nuance and exceptions and, you know, <clears throat> and subtlety to it. Um, but I would say at a high level, obviously, you only have to look at the total spend per capita to see that there's radically more inefficiency in the US health system than, than basically anywhere else in the world. Um, and as you say, <clears throat> because it's essentially been an organically evolved health system, you know, where the market has, has driven it, it's incredibly fragmented, um, but also culturally, a, much more than the UK, a place where, you know, um, obviously it's true of the US in general, where people understand that money is a key part of the equation. And again, this may be alien to folks who are in the US and not, don't know the, the UK system, but um, one of the features of the NHS is, is that, you know, so many people involved in it do it for the love and do it for the passion. And, you know, you know people who are doctors and nurses in the NHS, it's, just put it this way, it's not a path you choose if you want to be rich, right? Like if you want to optimize for earnings. And there's a very deeply held culture, which is that the, the money is like a sort of dirty word. Like it's something that isn't spoken about and commercial interests are viewed with a great suspicion. Um, and there's a huge degree of protectiveness around this concept of like privatizing the NHS, which I think is really great. And there's a part of what's protected it, but it makes it very, very challenging, like just at a cultural level to kind of, uh, as a commercial entity to do, to do business, you know, and it takes a long time to win the trust of, of the key stakeholders in the NHS. And so in the US, my experience was, you know, really refreshing in the sense of point one, there's so many opportunities through the system to drive efficiency. Like you're like, like we can, you know, it's really significant deltas that you can drive in terms of ROI. Um, and secondly, you can talk about money uh, and you can say, like, here's how we're going to monetarily help you, even though this is in the world of healthcare. Um, and because of the fragmentation, it actually produces so many more interfaces that, you know, so many potential models, like, you know, different people who might pay for it. So it actually, you know, I found it to be much more for all its dysfunction and perhaps slightly because of its dysfunction, the US it would just prove to be a much more fertile uh, place to like crack the code of how to actually make it commercially viable and sustainable. Okay, good. We're getting some questions coming in as we're going, Peter. So one that kind of builds off that is, you know, do you foresee, do you, do you see this as moving towards a, a consumer model as, as, a, as a viable business case or, or do you think it's more of a payer model and, and you know, how, kind of they're asking a little bit about your thoughts about Europe versus yeah. US and UK. Yeah, so my, I mean, the conclusion that I came to <clears throat> through the work with in the UK, because we we actually, one of the things we did, we you know, did, went direct to consumer. We did a, uh, we had a deal with Boots, the chemist, which you all in the UK will know about, but we had like a physical box product in like a hundred stores in yeah. the UK, like, like it's like, uh, which didn't work. Um, and you know, but was a part of the sort of learning process. And <clears throat> what I realized is some subtlety to this, like our mission at Big Health is to help millions back to good mental health. Like no asterisk, no small print, 
right. given my experience and Colin's, you know, great passion for the space, like that is the North Star that we organize every decision that we make in the business. And if, if that really is true, then we need to be commercially incented to help people get healthy as quickly as possible. It sounds kind of obvious, right? And I realize that, you know, the, the real, there are ways of making consumer, um, call it just broadly health and wellness products, particularly in mental health work. We've seen great success stories there. But I'm pretty convinced that the only commercial model there is a subscri subscription model. Mm -hmm. Like that's really the predominant, should we say, maybe not the only, but the predominant model that has seen success. And so my issue with that is that, therefore, if that's the model we follow, we're no longer incented. We're incented to keep people on like on treatment it's really a big term but like you know engage like that's how we which is at odds with really what the power of these a lot of these interventions is which is a short form of intervention empowers you to then be your own therapist for years you know and so i realized you know very tortuously that our customer therefore is not the end consumer it's whoever economically benefits from that person being healthy as quickly as possible and so that is whoever pays their healthcare costs. And so in the UK, it's the NHS. In the US, it's the whole spectrum of, uh, of small P payers um, who pay the three and a half trillion dollars a year in healthcare costs. And so my own view, it's very, very, uh, just to say like digital therapeutics, my view is, is that there is no one model. It's as heterogeneous as all of healthcare, different condition areas with different, different risk benefit profiles, different dynamics will lend themselves to different distribution models, different reimbursement models. And so all I can say is, is that in the disease, you know, the areas that we operate, then, um, you know, the right thing is for this to be, especially with huge access issues and, and like includes, you know, inc inclusion and equity issues, then like it being fully paid for by the payer is, uh, I think, the right model. Getting lots of questions coming in, which is great. So I'm trying to kind of parse them and, and segment them in. So here's here's one I think that builds off that. In the US, did, did you stumble upon the, you talk about Bufa in the UK, but in the US, did you, did you stumble upon the employer uh, route first of all, or was it serendipity or kind of, how did you kind of, um, kind of navigate, navigate your way through? I mean, there's a heavy dose of serendipity in, in, in all of it. <laughs> so I think like, uh, as much as I'd like to sort of post-rationalize it yeah. to make myself look like a genius, like actually there's a lot of like blind sort of blind luck and um, trial and error. Yeah, we just like, candidly, like when we first came to the US, it was it was as crude as going. We, we had this insight that like okay, like it's whoever's it's the ec the economic buyer here needs to be the person who is incented to get to get that keep keep their people their members like as healthy as quickly as possible. And so we only had the vaguest sense that the employers would be a potentially a good avenue for that. We didn't really candidly understand the full nuances we do now around that market. Um, and yeah, we just were able to land, start landing a few of these large employers, you know, within that first year of being here. And then it just, you know, rolled from there. And so, you know, it really is a, um, a market where candidly, like just being a high quality partner <laughs> counts for a lot like delivering value doing what you say you're going to do like uh, genuinely acting in their interests helps you build you know trust with those partners and like any market it's a you know, small world and like you know word of mouth and um, referrals count for a lot as well so it was kind of there's a bit of a rationale to it but we didn't certainly didn't know what we know now in terms of the nuance of that market so it was a, there was a heavy dose of luck as well okay. 
Um, coming back to your, your your kind of point about you know you don't want to be a subscription model because you're kind of keeping the person on. You want them yeah. to go through it, be healthy, kind of kind of move on, right? And obviously, then you know your revenue stops at the point of you know they become you know they're they're, they're well again, right? So, um, you know that's a really interesting space to be in. And you look at all the conversations that are going on around the you know the very complex therapies, you know. That the drug companies are charging, you know, an awful lot of money for. How do you think about that the pricing model? Uh, given that you know you pay for a certain period and then, then it's not a it's not a kind of ongoing recurring revenue. I think um, I think the beauty of digital therapeutics is the degree of flexibility that we have. Um, so uh, you know, I think that the way I viewed it is is the you know job number one is to establish like pathways of, of contracting and payment that, um, that get everybody, the market payers comfortable with the idea of this being a true therapeutic. You know, so a lot of the work we've done through the, the PBM is related to that actually. It's as much about, um, let's call it positioning and, and kind of as it is about the mechanics of distribution and, and, and billing and so forth. So you know, job one has been, for me anyway, just like establishing that this is, this is something which should be evaluated, you know, treated, treated broadly in the same way as any other therapeutic. I think you know, where we go from there, the world is our oyster. I think that unlike other classes of therapeutic, um, we have a lot of advantages, right? We have such rich data, you know, which affords us um, the opportunity to further double down on this connection, you know, alignment of incentives. So, you know, what I, love to see is that the whole industry moving even further towards you know being paid based on outcome and based on sust sustained outcomes right so i think there are ways in which you know if wouldn't it be great if you know all of us were in for the sake of patients you know and we are the patients at the end of the day like our mothers our brothers our daughters our sisters right are the patients wouldn't it be great if the people delivering that healthcare had like a real economic incentive to keep you healthy with a minimum of treatment, right? And so like, I think that I can, foresee, I can foresee a world, I think this is about maturity of the industry. I think we're gonna to get to a point where like, um, you know, we do see more of these like longer term payment models um, where they are connected to outcomes versus just the amount of treatment that you deliver. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I would love to see that being the sort of the basis on which the industry is, is competing. Mm -hmm. Let's uh, let's go back to your 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 GP in the UK. Yeah. Uh, today, would he be prescribing a digital therapeutic? Do you think, or you know, how uh, how broad is the message getting? You know, the, the the research has been around for years, as you say, but like just that awareness hasn't been, and the solutions haven't been. How 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 far down the road do you think we are in terms of kind of broad adoption of, of these technologies? Yeah, I think. Um... I think you were talking about not being able to come to the US. I also haven't been able to come back to the UK for at least a couple of years. So like, you know, this is a little bit, uh, this will be slightly out of date or like secondhand knowledge, but, um, you know, I mean, so Bruce Keogh, who was the, um, you know, medical director of the NHS for 10 years, you know, very fortunate to, to class him as one of our advisors. And, and you know, he, he classed it as saying, you know, 10 years of change has happened in three months, you know, in, in the health system following the pandemic. You know, what I would say is, is that even the data prior to the pandemic uh, illustrated that there is an, an assumption that GPs, particularly in the UK, are kind of Luddites. 
and that they are sort of resistant to technology. The reality is, is that they are humans and they all have smartphones. And like there is at least a, you know, a strong signal that there is a latent desire and understanding to want to use technology to ultimately doctors want to help their patients, right? And so we've actually had a lot of success in the UK developing models of which are integrated into you know into primary care very effectively um, where you know we've seen like GPs want to have options they want to have options to refer the challenge is often how you bridge both intention and also then the workflow like how do you actually make it something that is feasible yeah. for doctors to refer um, I mean we have it with a study that just came out that we um, that was published uh, around our work in the NHS where looking at IAPS, right, which is the you know, increasing access to psychological therapies centralized program in the UK for delivering psychological therapies. And that, show, that was showing how our digital therapeutics work alongside therapy. And we're, it was awesome to see a significantly greater remission rate for individuals who are on both versus just therapy. Right? So I think there is, as, as we see more of this data come out from real world implementations, I think that counts for a lot in in the in the sort of GP and doctor community. So, my that specific doctor, who knows? But I think that the overarching data suggests that 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 we are that that tide is turning, and it, I think it is a bottom up thing. I think it's like doctors, people too, and yeah. everyone is more comfortable with digital models of care. Yeah, it feels like you know going back five years ago, mental health was really something that wasn't really talked about. There wasn't a lot of money being put into it wasn't cool to talk about it etc etc but that seems to have changed and you see the amount of investment that's got venture capital money that's gone into the space into digital health and into mental health um and so it feels like the tide is turning a little bit and i think you know COVID has kind of been an accelerator to that but what we see yeah lots of companies raising lots of money right and a very busy marketplace how do you how do you kind of stand out and how does big health stand out in, you know, that I know you guys have been around for a long time and you have evidence, but how do you kind of position in that busy marketplace? I think point one, I think we're seeing at speed a segmentation of the overall mental health, call it market, right. which is, you know, symptomatic of, as you say, this rapid acceleration of it, of it being prioritized and like unignorable as like a problem. And so I would say that, you know, here's the, at least the categories that I see, right? So I think the first wave in mental health was uh, very understandably about taking the traditional models of human delivered therapy and like le- using technology to extend access and reach. And right? so essentially like telehealth, telepsych, yeah. a lot of these other platforms that, that center on humans as a, as a delivery model, um, which is important and it's an important first step, um, but it's only ever going to be like an incremental gain versus you know however much you leverage those therapists we're still we've still run out of therapists there aren't no therapists and there never will be right and so that's all we're seeing these models already kind of topping out uh, in terms of the actual therapy therapy component you know we can add coaching and content and stuff but the actual therapy component is topping out and even with telehealth you're getting waiting lists and you know big wait times and so forth so that's one category very important but it's only ever going to reach a subset of the population on the other end of the spectrum you have you know, what I consider to be like sort of wellness or like um, prevent- preventative interventions, right? So this is your sort of, you know, you can think about these consumer apps that like focus on mindfulness, you know, very important role, but they're not, you know, clinical interventions. They're not as appropriate 
uh, for delivery against people with a clinical need. And so bang in the middle is where I think digital therapeutics in general like uh, are, are increasingly carving out a clear role in, in the minds of, of the market, which is, you know, there's this huge swathe of people who still need help, who, like I say, today, the only solution they have that's sufficiently scalable is medication. That's the only alternative. And so that is where I think that digital therapeutics broadly, that is to say, you know, pure software solutions that actually are appropriate and deliver clinical effects, clinically meaningful effects, um, you know, can be deployed at scale. And so point one is I think that we're seeing a lot more definition around the overall um, mental health uh, market. Secondly, within that, yeah, as you say, we've been doing this a long time, healthcare isn't fast. And like, you know, I think that, you know, I'm very proud of the sort of overwhelming clinical evidence base that we've collected, you know, we're featured in the clinical guidelines, American College of Physician guidelines, you know, that counts for a lot in healthcare. And in terms of reimbursement decision-making, um, you know, partnerships and so forth. Um, and because we've been doing it, you know, for such a long period of time, we've been able to refine a lot of the deployment models, distribution models, a very significant scale now. And so I think that, um, yeah, I think that that's really what we're seeing as being the, um, as, as the big differences in terms of, you know, us versus other folks that are engaged in tackling this problem. Yeah, and to kind of layer another level of complexity on top, I mean, a lot of, a lot of the people who can benefit from these solutions are the underserved populations, right? How do you, how do you think about your commercial models in relation to those communities? Our mission is to help millions back to good mental health. Like I say, no asterisk, no small print. And we, I take that very seriously, as you say, that if we're not actively engaging underserved populations, then we are phonies. We're not being true to that mission. And so myself and Colin, my co-founder, actually published um, a, I think, hopefully, quite crisp and, and thorough commitment to mental health equity. Um, several months ago, which was built in consultation with a number of external experts in the field um, with some very concrete goals and commitments around it. And so my, yeah, you can, you can see there like the commitment to extending access to underserved communities as part of what we do. And I think it is a, it's part and parcel of what I see as being the sort of uh, meta opportunity or imperative here, which is we have an opportunity as an industry to, to shape the next generation of healthcare. And there is, if, if one will forgive a, a somewhat um, non-medical term, but there is, a, there is a, a question here about the fight for the soul of this industry. And so I think that, you know, I certainly feel a lot of um, responsibility, maybe is a big word, but like a real drive to try and establish some principles that really do act in the best interests of, of as many people as possible, you know? Um, so I, like I say, our, our, we, 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 we put out that public commitment, uh, that part, big part of that is holding us accountable to that. Um, but it really is gonna require like an overall industry mindset um, to really make a big dent in that problem. Do you think the existing players of the life sciences companies, et cetera, will play a significant role here? Or do you think it will be companies like yourself who uh, like yourselves who will come forward and kind of uh, create a new model i guess I, I mean i'd love it i love it if you know this is like if if that were the case and you know i 
it's an open invitation. Like, please, any, <laughs> you know, pharma, life sciences companies that are interested in, you know, figuring out together how to, you know, radically shift the inequities in particularly mental health care, which are huge. Um, please let me know. I would love to talk about it. Because I think this is, this is, um, that's ultimately, like I say, what this is about is, um, you know, for all the complexity and business models, and uh, like, ultimately, this is about, I think, most people I talk to in this, in, you know, in healthcare in general, are in it because of the motivation to actually make things better for, yeah, for people. Perfect. So we've gone for 45 minutes in, Peter, and I, there's loads of questions coming in. Yeah. Loads of questions, but so I'd like to ask you one more from my side, and then I want to kind of go through the ones that have come in. So um, talk a little bit about evidence, uh, evidence mm -hmm. generation, and you know what you've kind of learned in the various RCTs you run, and what you'd advise maybe others in this space in terms of how to approach it and so maybe you could talk talk a little bit about that. Totally, yeah. So again, I, I give all the credit to this to my co-founder Colin, you know, a professor at Oxford University, you know, really from day one, more from a values-based perspective, was like we need to do the work to make sure that this is, you know, we're confident of the safety and effectiveness, efficacy and effectiveness of, of our solutions. And so he set rolling a what is now this sort of runaway train of of research of a research program that just gets faster and faster. So as I mentioned before, you know, we have now, like, I want to say 64 publications, it's getting bigger and bigger every day. Um, you know, that includes 13 randomized control trials, uh, a stat that still blows my mind. More participants have taken part in controlled studies of Sleepio than have ever taken part in studies of Ambien, right? If you, wow. according to the clinical guidelines, right? Oh, yeah. so, That's a good one. <laughs> You know, but and I think you know you can sort of read that two ways. You can go, well, you know, it's a testament to I think our research program. It's also raises some serious questions about yeah. you know the research program around um, some of these medications. You know that have been around for a long time. Um, so you know it's significant. We have another I want to say 30, 40 studies that are currently in flight, um, and you know a big part of that has been the quality of the research that we've done in terms of collaborators about half our studies are independently led um you know we published in JAMA Lancet Psychiatry like the top journals in the world and that is really what directly has led to us being cited in leading clinical guidelines across the world you know ranging from American College of Physicians through to NICE in the UK and you know, the, uh, you know like I say the evidence the, the point about like evidence really um is just the right thing to do all around, like there's like you look at it from any angle, it's the right thing to do, right? In terms of like duty of care to uh, you know patients and the public, uh, but also commercially. Like if you know, for me, it's always been uh, clear that if you look at precedent, if you look at the way that pharma has evolved and you know, the rails that you know, I have a lot of respect for pharma and what they've been able to demonstrate and achieve, and I think we can learn a lot in both directions from 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 their examples. Um, but you know, outcomes is what gets paid for, and and being able to demonstrate those outcomes is is what's really key. And so, um, so yeah, so I think you know my advice to anyone would be it's the right thing to do to to focus on clinical evidence. I remember when back when we were, you know, you and me, Martin, like back in the you know back in the day, the, the big debate was you know those involved in men, in digital health in general, like oh we can't do it, it's too expensive, it's unreasonable. And I was just I roll my eyes. I'm like you're in the wrong game. <laughs> 
you know what I mean? Like, as in, like, if, you, if you're not, like... That was certainly the mindset going back 10 years, yeah. kind of the Facebook, you know, move fast and, and, and fix it after, yeah. you know, and you could see the doctor wincing in the corner going, that's not going to work, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, that was yeah. yeah, and so I think... A little bit as an industry. Totally, totally right. I don't think anyone thinks that now, you know, I think people are, obviously, it's great to see this being much more the norm. But anyway, I just think it's, like, critical all around. And I think, you know, hopefully we're, we're an example of showing that it's feasible. Like it doesn't, you know, and there's ways of doing this that are very sort of cost effective and efficient and, and fast. And, you know, a lot of the sort of assumptions about evidence don't have to hold true, I don't think. You know, I think we should be striving to innovate in models of evidence collection the same way we innovate in every other domain. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay, good, good. Okay, so that's, that's my questions. Let's have a look and see what's come in. So um, a few of them here. Yeah, I just, this one is interesting. Do you, yeah, so it's talking about elderly care and do you mm -hmm. think the GP shall prescribe a DTX for sleep problems mm -hmm. or a DTX for depression? Yeah. So do you think they'll kind of prescribe two different DTXs? And mm -hmm. for example, in elderly care, you know, you sometimes have patients who are then also taking, you know, a number of other medicines for comorbidities. And yeah. how, how would you, that's a complicated one. How, how would you think about that? <laughs> Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's still an open question. I mean, definitely the existing um, rails and kind of uh, models that people have in healthcare lean towards having separate therapeutics per condition, like that, or indication, should we say. Like that's kind of the rails that exist already. That's the mindset and the way that things are set up. It, of course, isn't the way that digital therapeutics have to do, you know, there are, there's more flexibility in digital therapeutics. So I think, but I think if you ask me today, I would say, yes, there's probably going to be more of a sort of portfolio of, um, you know, of interventions um, for different indications. I think elderly care is obviously a related point. Um, you know, I think it's a good example of what I was saying earlier about how there's no one size fits all model in, in digital therapeutics, because, you know, as we said, as, as this question highlights, a huge need in the elder and just take insomnia like highest prevalence groups of the elderly um and we know that this is a great entry point in order to deliver all sorts of second positive secondary and tertiary downstream outcomes um but you know our you know we know that it, our solutions are effective in elderly populations but at scale do we need different models in combination with providers to be able to actually make sure that those pa those patient groups are able to use those digital therapeutics effectively. So, in terms of like that particular group, yeah, I think it's a really good open question about how one needs to adapt the model in order to really reach that. And that's true of a ton of you know uh, other subgroups in the population who might need slight adjustments to the model in order to get them effective care. Okay, and kind of building all of that, then there's a question here from Tim which is in relation to kind of cultural elements and um, for example, in Asian markets, Japan, China, South Korea. So I guess Tim is kind of asking about how do you mm. think about the cultural elements uh, and, and how do you adapt or do you, is that part of how you guys? Yeah, it's a big part of, of the, the need to get a breadth of evidence across a breadth of populations, you know, to triangulate, uh, you know, and, and have an open mind as to like, in which populations do we see stronger or weaker effects and as a result where do we need to focus our energies in terms of making any given intervention you know culturally responsive um you know we've um at big health like developed a cultural responsiveness framework that is driving all of our product development processes 
as well as a uh, like a research protocol to, to drive like inclusion in, in, in delivery of research. We're actually going to publish it and folks can uh, you know, essentially open source it, you know, utilize that model and that framework in their own research. Um, so what we do know, so A, we today, you know, we have some uh, big health, some pretty good data spanning different um, demographic groups, different cultural groups. Um, and we do see really good, in general, like good overall effectiveness, independent of some of those, those factors um, and demographic factors. Um, beyond that, like, you know, you talk about these different territories. Again, there's good existing evidence behind broadly cognitive and behavioral approaches um, across cultures. Like it does need cultural adaptation, but it's not like we see, you know, that, that cult, those cultural differences having a huge effect mm -hmm. on the effectiveness of, um, of these interventions. So there is reason to believe that this is, these are approaches that will be globally relevant and effective. You talked earlier about the kind of the segmentation of the market and the different kind of categories. How, how far do you think um, digital therapeutics and prescription digital therapeutics can go in terms of uh, some of the bigger mental health challenges we have? You know, so when we think about sort of a spectrum of severity, like how far do you think they can go on their own? And then, you know, how far do you think they can go alongside a kind of traditional? Um, Pharmacological solution. Yeah, I mean, again, I think that different. There's going to be a, again a spectrum of answers to that question. So, like in the areas, you know, we are very consciously focused on these very high prevalence chronic, you know, mental health issues, um, which we know respond very well to these interventions, and we know that for many of these areas the sort of risk benefit profile affords us the ability to deliver without a prescription like that's been our approach in, in the main is is the issue is an access issue and it's a scale problem like it's just a volume problem you talk about you know in other domains of mental health like schizophrenia like you know these the which have a very you know very different um profiles yeah. and you know like the different risk profiles like you know and patient you know needs um and so i think that you know, in that instance, it can be fully appropriate, you know, appropriate that like there's a prescription to mediate it. Um, and perhaps there's even like a support model that goes alongside, you know, some of these interventions. And so I think that like, um, you know, maybe it's alongside medications, you know, that's part, it's a sort of joint um, adjunctive uh, intervention. And so the key point here is, is that when I, what is true across the spectrum is, is that uh, the digital therapies, insofar as I've been able to see, have evidence of being able to increase the quality of care and the efficiency of care, irrespective of the way in which they're combined. So I've already, you know, I talked about in the UK, like we've been offered alongside, um, you know, human delivered therapy and been able to demonstrate in the wild, like significant increases in total remission rates um, versus just humans alone. And so the point is, is that whatever the combination, the, the digital therapeutic is gonna, is gonna be a positive um, net effect on effectiveness and efficiency. Okay, that's cool. Um, we've got, I'm gonna think we have time for about two more questions. So uh, what is your, this one comes in from Sonia. Uh, what is your experience with recruitment for your trials? Mm -hmm. how, who, like, what are your channels? How do you, how do you go about recruiting people for your trials? Yeah. So yeah, we've got really good at this. And like you'll see in a lot of our studies, all of which are published and you can find them on our, our webbighealth.com. Uh, 
is, you know, we've conducted some really large studies, like multi-thousand N participant, you know, controlled, controlled trials. Um, and so, yeah, like I, it speaks to some of the benefit of a digital therapeutic. You can use purely digital means to reach participants and to, to enroll them, engage them, and, and actually then, you know, to manage their, the intervention. And often, obviously, different protocols have different, you know, different trials of different designs, but it can be a real benefit at, in terms of it being um, more equivalent to a real-world deployment if those participants are acting at arm's length, right? That if they are essentially self-guiding through the program, and that also helps with trial efficiency. So, um, so yeah, so, so we've, uh, we've, again, we've been progressively tuning it, but we're now, we've now been able to, through a lot of these like digital channels, be able to get like very, very efficiently now and very quickly recruit sometimes like thousands of, of participants in a very short period of time. That's super. So there's lots of questions here I didn't get to, unfortunately. Um, we're, we're, at, we're, at the, we're almost at time. I, I have one which I didn't give you a heads up on, so this is a bit of a, uh, but if, if we ask, we ask, our, we ask our, all, our, all our guests, if they weren't doing what they were doing today in another world or another life, if they weren't running their companies or you know, running their funds or whatever, what, what would they be doing? So Peter, if you weren't I mean, running big health, what would you be doing? I mean, maybe I would, I'd probably still be in the karaoke industry. <laughs> maybe I'd be running my own bar at this point. I don't know. <laughs> I, don't know. <laughs> I, I hope like that's probably not the case. Um, I honestly don't know. I think I would be, uh, let's go with that. I'll be in the karaoke industry. Okay, that's, <laughs> that's a good answer. I'd take that. <laughs> All right, well, well, look, we're almost uh, there. Just wanted to announce that um, we're delighted, and maybe Neve, you can you can share the screen. We're delighted to be um, uh, launching our, our mental health community, our digital mental health community. I'm delighted that Peter is going to continue to participate. So, as most people know, these type of events are just the start. Hopefully, the start of making connections and and uh, creating more collaborations. So, what we're trying to do is. Uh, capture some of what Peter shared today and provide a, a platform to continue those conversations. And so this is um, this is the, the platform, as you can see. And if we scroll up to the top, you can see the, the curated news. You can see the meetings that are coming up. We're hosting them on a fairly regular basis. And uh, yeah, just 12 meetings uh, in the pipeline. And so uh, this is a great way of, I mean, just encourage you know, people who are on, on, the, um, on the call today to, to check it out, you can join the community and, and that's a great way of kind of seeing what's happening with the, the big health story and the rest of the community. So just do a quick shout out to that. Um, we will share the link. Uh, maybe we can share the link in the chat here if people want to uh, participate. Otherwise, Peter, it's been a blast. Yeah, uh, I, I really enjoyed it and I learned so much and I'm a big karaoke fan as my team knows so uh, there's another connection another set of conversations that we'll have hopefully maybe a separate community separate Health community maybe, maybe we can merge it too maybe there's a therapeutic effect uh, some type of trial we can do around it uh, and work together yeah so just on behalf of everybody thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule and it's been really uh, fun and educational and